Um, my name is Jonathan Keenan, and I serve as the RUF campus minister at UCSB. For those of you who have no idea what RUF is, that's okay. It is our denomination's ministry to the college campus, and so I have the wonderful privilege of serving at UCSB. And so, uh, but this morning I have the wonderful privilege of opening up God's Word for us this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can keep it to the passage that was just read from Luke's Gospel. I came across a story about a guy named Bill who had to take a leave of absence from his work because his father was dying of cancer. And so he uh, took a leave from work to kind of care for his, his dying father. And um, as he was reflecting on kind of his time spending with his dad, he was like, you know, our, our roles had kind of ha- had reversed to where, you know, when he was a little kid, his dad took care of him, bathed him, clothed him, fed him, things like that. And now he, much older, is now taking care of his dad in, in a very similar way. And he said... There was this nightly routine that they, they went through. After a long day of Bill caring for his dad, um, he would try and put his dad to sleep by reading to him, just like his dad used to read to him when he was a little boy. <laughs> and he said, what would happen is I would pick a, a book, a novel, something that my father enjoyed, and as I would read to him, he would close his eyes, and then he would pop one eye open and just stare at me. And I would say, Dad, here's the deal. I read, you go to sleep. So his dad would apologize, and he would close both his eyes, and then he would read a little bit more, and he would pop the other eye open, and he would just stare at his son. He said, after my dad... He said, after my dad passed away, I was reflecting on this nightly routine that happened over and over again. And I realized it wasn't so much a story about a son reading to his father as much as it was a father who was just unable to take his smiling gaze off his son. And I, I thought about that story in, in light of our passage that was just read, because in Luke 3, Jesus is baptized. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he's baptized in the Jordan. And there's this voice from heaven that comes over that says, This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he begins knowing that he has his father's smiling gaze upon him. That he goes out with his father's good pleasure to do the work that the father has sent him to do. And here's the thing, Advent is a season for us of waiting of longing for the arrival of the Messiah to come and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. But from heaven's perspective, I realize that Advent 
is really a season of watching, of beholding, where the Father is watching and beholding the Son whom He has sent to do the work of redemption. And the question is, is what does the Father see? And before we jump into Luke's gospel, let me pray before we consider it. Our Father, we do ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in your name. Amen. Luke 4, Jesus goes to his hometown, the place that he grew up, walks into the synagogue and preaches his very first sermon. This is his, the inauguration of his public ministry. And the father is watching and beholding the son whom he has anointed to initiate a new season of favor. That the Father in heaven has anointed His Son by the power of the Spirit to inaugurate a new season of favor for His people. And what I want to do this morning as we look at this passage, I want to look at two things. I want to look at the advent of good news and then the response. The advent of good news and then the response. First, the advent of good news. Jesus stands in the synagogue, as was his custom, and he opens the scroll of Isaiah. And he's in front of his hometown crowd, people who knew him, who grew up with him. He reads from Isaiah, and then he sits down. And he says the most astonishing thing to his hometown crowd. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. And the people are astonished. They're amazed. And he comes and he, as he says, this scripture has been fulfilled, he ends it by saying that the year of the Lord's favor has now been fulfilled. It's been inaugurated in your midst. And the question is, is what is he talking about? What is this year of the Lord's favor? Jesus is referencing an an old Israelite an old celebration in Israel's history where, and this is amazing, that God would command his people to do this. But every 50 years in Israel's history, God would tell Israel that this, every 50 years, all slaves would go free. People who had amassed debt would be released from their debt. I mean, just think about that. (laughs) And then people who had their property lost or damaged, it was restored back to them. And Jesus comes and he stands in the midst of his people and he says, the ultimate year of jubilee has come. It has been fulfilled in your midst this day. And the people are astonished. Because what Jesus brings with the advent of good news, with the year of jubilee, what he brings, he brings freedom and he brings hope. And this is the good news 
that comes with Advent. First, Jesus brings freedom. Look again at verse 18. He comes to declare good news for the poor and liberty for the imprisoned. He comes to bring freedom for the poor and freedom for the imprisoned. Now, anytime the Bible talks about the poor, that that term has a broad meaning. But in the context of Isaiah, and really in the context that Jesus uh, is speaking into, the poor, biblically, were always the lonely, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the brokenhearted. And in cultural terms, the poor were often associated as those who stood outside of God's favor. And Jesus comes and he declares good news for the poor, for the lonely, for the disenfranchised. He comes to declare good news for the helpless and the needy. I'm sure you've seen the statue in, in Rio, the big Jesus Redeemer statue that stands above the city with his hands wide open. It's a hundred foot tall statue that stands over the city and it looks as if Jesus is blessing the whole city. It's a beautiful statue. But the sad reality is that right below the statue is one of the world's most violent, poverty-stricken slums in all the world. And it's as if that, that, that picture is communicating that Jesus is somehow detached from the poor and the needy and the helpless. But what Luke is communicating and what Jesus is inaugurating is that he's not above the poor, but he actually comes down into the very slums to rescue the needy, the helpless, the poor, the disenfranchised. Jesus is not attached from the poor. He comes to bring freedom. But this freedom is also heightened when he comes to declare liberty for the imprisoned. And again, when you look at the context of this, the imprisoned were were often associated with those who had amassed a significant amount of debt. And what they would do in order to pay off the debt is they would actually sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off their debt. And Jesus here is almost exclusively saying that I have come to set you free from this debt that you have amassed against a holy and righteous God. That I've come to set you free. I've come to give you forgiveness in my name. I've come for the imprisoned, those who are trapped in their sin and their guilt, and their shame. Jesus comes to set you free. December 20th, 1974, there was a little boy named Chris Carrier who was on his way home for the, um, walking home for the Christmas holidays where he was met in his driveway by someone who had said that he was a friend of the family. And this was not a friend of the family. He ended up taking Chris to the outskirts of town and violently stabbing him 
and shot him and leaving him for dead. Amazingly, Chris survived the attack, but his family obviously sent out massive search parties. Rewards were set up, and Christmas had come and gone. They were in deep seasons of grief. And on December 26th, Chris woke up and somehow managed to crawl or walk to a local road where a deer hunter found him and obviously took him to a local hospital where Chris survived. And the only injury he had was that he was left blind in his left eye for the gunshot wound. But he was so traumatized from the event that he could not remember the identity of the person that had done it to him. Fast forward 22 years later, the the lead detective on the case had always thought that it was this man named David McAllister who had previously worked for the family but had been fired, but they could never prove it. But the detective found out that David McAllister was in a local nursing home on his deathbed, and so he went to him. And he said, I want to give you the opportunity to confess the crime you know, to confess whether or not you did this. The statutes of limitation has expired, but I want to give Chris and his family an opportunity to put this behind them. And sure enough, David McAllister confessed that he was the one that did it. So the detective calls Chris, who's now 32, married, and has two daughters, tells him that David McAllister has confessed. And so Chris, over the next five days, goes and visits David McAllister. On one occasion, takes his two daughters with him. And as he tells this story, he says, I went to David and I told him this. I said, I forgive you. And all that there is between us now is a new friendship. Because I have been forgiven by Jesus. And I want our friendship to extend beyond this life. David McAllister embraced Jesus, died two days later, forgiven by Chris, but ultimately forgiven by God. See, Jesus comes to inaugurate freedom for the poor and the oppressed, I mean, and the imprisoned. But he also comes to bring hope. And this hope that Jesus brings, it's, it's a present hope, but it's also a future hope. Again, look down at verse 22 where Jesus comes and he brings a present hope to the blind. He comes to bring sight to the blind. Now again, anytime Jesus healed someone of their physical blindness, if that was only what he was doing, it would have been a very, it would have been an amazing blessing, but it would have been a very limited blessing. When Jesus healed people, it often pointed to a greater, deeper reality. And so when Jesus comes to bring hope to the blind, what he's actually coming to do is he's bringing hope for people to actually see and behold the grace and love and beauty of God. In other words, when Jesus heals the blind, he's coming and he's saying, I want to give you sight to see your need of me 
and to see and behold the beauty and grace and love and forgiveness that is offered to you in my name. He comes to bring hope, and that is a present hope to see our need of Jesus. But there's also this future hope. Because Jesus comes to bring liberty also to those who are oppressed. And the oppressed are always those associated by the ones who've been crushed in spirit. Who've just been weighed down by living in a fallen and broken world. Those who've just been dominated by the cruelty of living in a world where there is real evil. So the oppressed are people who have been abused, where there's real tragedy and heartache, people who have suffered enormous loss. And Jesus comes and he says, there is this hope on the horizon where one day there's, there's going to be an ultimate year of jubilee where all of your oppression is going to be lifted. It's going to be covered. It's going to be dealt with. You're going to be freed from it. He comes to bring a future hope. A couple of days ago, I was talking to a dear friend of mine who also does RUF. And and we were just kind of reflecting on this year and our job as, as pastors and just oftentimes how we interact with people who just have really hard and tragic stories. And we were just talking about how, you know, the way of this life can be hard. It, it can be full of disappointment and discouragement. It can, it can just be crushingly hard. And, and my friend, he said, you know, I've come to realize that, yes, the way of this life, it can be hard. It can be devastatingly hard. But he goes, you know what I found out? He goes, I've discovered that Jesus is not. And you know, that really struck me. Because, yes, life is hard. But Jesus is not. And he comes and he says that there is this hope that you can lean into if you are oppressed. And Jesus says you can actually lean into me because my burden is light. My yoke is easy. And you can actually find rest in me. Jesus comes in the advent of good news to proclaim that there is freedom and there is hope. That's why the Father has anointed him and sent him to bring. So what's the response? You know, there's, I think there's only two places in Scripture where Jesus is amazed. In Luke 7, just a few chapters over, Jesus is amazed at the faith of the centurion, at his belief in the Son of Man. And the only other place that Jesus is astonished or amazed is in our passage. 
Now, if you flip over to Mark's version of it, when Jesus is done preaching and he sees the response of the people of Nazareth and their anger and their rage, Mark tells us that Jesus was utterly astonished because of their unbelief. That Jesus is marveled because the people that he grew up with, the people that knew him, remained in their unbelief. And the question is why? I think we see two reasons why. One, the people of Nazareth doubted his credentials. And then they doubted their own need for him. Look again at verse 22. In their amazement that Jesus stood up, read from the scroll of Isaiah, said it's fulfilled, they're... They literally are astonished. Then all of a sudden they go, wait, wait. Is this not Joseph's son? There's no way that a son of a carpenter could actually speak and teach and preach with that kind of authority. There's no way that Joseph's son is the Messiah. And Jesus picks up on their doubt. And he says, surely you'll quote to me this old proverb, physician, heal yourself. What you did here, do, what you did at Capernaum, do here in our midst. In other words, the people of Nazareth are looking to Jesus and they're saying, prove it. Where's the evidence? Where's the credentials for you to actually say what you did? And Jesus doesn't take the bait. He does not bow the knee to their agenda. Why? And it's very interesting because right before Jesus preached in the synagogue, he's with Satan, being tempted in the wilderness. And you remember when Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem, to the highest point in Jerusalem? You remember what Satan said to Jesus? If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quotes the psalm. The psalmist by saying, and the angels of the Lord will guard your feet. And do you remember what Jesus said? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is marveled at the unbelief of the people of Nazareth because in so many ways, their disposition is no different than Satan himself. Jesus does not bow the knee to their agenda. Jesus comes and he says, if you want to deal with me, you deal with me on my terms. And here's the thing. Some of you here this morning are very familiar with Jesus. You've grown up around him. You know who he is. You know what he's done. You know what kind of life he has lived. And my question for you is this, has familiarity with Jesus bred contempt? Because unless Jesus has all your love, all your devotion, all your worship, all your obedience, then he simply says you remain in unbelief. You're no different than the people of Nazareth. You see, they doubted his credentials, but they also doubted their own need for him because underneath their unbelief was a much bigger problem than mere proof. Because the people of Nazareth did not identify with the people that Jesus came to rescue 
In other words, the people of Nazareth did not believe they needed Jesus or a Redeemer. And to prove that point, Jesus tells two Old Testament stories to drive home this point. A Gentile widow under the the leadership of the prophet Elijah, and then a leper in the time of Elisha. Jesus comes and he says, tells this story about a starving widow in the days of Elijah, that she's down to her last meal. And Elijah looks at her and says, listen, go home, bake, trust that the Lord will not let you go hungry. And she goes home, believes it, and does it, and sure enough, the Lord takes care of her. And the people of Nazareth are angry when they hear this. Why? Because the Gentile widow recognized her own poverty and her fatal lack of resources, that she was without hope unless God intervened. And the people of Nazareth do not recognize their own poverty, their own helplessness, their own neediness. And they will have none of it. But Jesus ups the ante. And he tells this story about Naaman the leper. Where the Syrian king looked at his commander who had leprosy and said, Listen, go to Elisha and get healed. And Elisha tells him to go down to the Jordan and bathe seven times. And sure enough, Naaman does it. And he is healed and he is restored. And the people of Nazareth, after they heard this, they are furious with Jesus. Because in their eyes, they were nothing like this leper. They were respectable, synagogue-attending Jews who did not need cleansing because of their own self-righteousness, because of their own delusion of thinking that they somehow could obey their way to God. And Jesus comes and he looks into the heart of of the people of Nazareth and says, you are as defiled as Naaman the leper and unless I cleanse you, unless you bathe in my grace and in my forgiveness, you will not be healed. Their their mood goes from amazement to literally, after Jesus preaches his very first sermon, take him to the top of the hill to try and kill him. Now, I remember my first sermon. It was horrible. But no one tried to kill me. (laughs) At least they didn't tell me they were trying to kill me. But literally, these people that grew up with Jesus are furious. They're mad at him. And the reason why they respond this way is because they do not recognize their own poverty, their own helplessness, their own defilement. They do not see their own need for Jesus. And here's the thing. If you want to experience the advent of good news, if you want to experience the freedom and the hope that is offered to you this day, then you must recognize your own poverty, your own helplessness, your own sinfulness. So what do we do with this? There's always two faces to the season of Advent. There is the face of redemption, and then there is the face of judgment. And the church lives between those two realities. We live between 
the arrival of, of the first coming of Jesus that inaugurated the season of redemption and the second coming, which inaugurates the season of judgment. And what was so fascinating about the scroll that Jesus read from in Isaiah when he stood up and he read, he actually leaves out the second half of the last line. When he stands up and he says, Today I announce and proclaim and declare the year of the Lord's favor. If you go to Isaiah, there's another half of it. And the other half is this, and the vengeance of God. What I want you to see is that, yes, on the horizon there is a day that is coming where God will inaugurate judgment. But that day was not fulfilled in Jesus' when he stood up in the synagogue. What was fulfilled was the season or the year of the Lord's favor. And what I want you to see is that there is a day coming when Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead. But that day has not yet come. Because today is still the year of the Lord's favor. Today is still the year of the Lord's blessing, His jubilee, where you can still embrace Him, where you can still behold Him, where you can still trust Him. Do you want freedom? Do you want hope? then Jesus simply says, come and trust me. How can you trust Jesus this morning? It's because Jesus identifies with the very people that he came to save. Because you know what? At the very end of his life, there's another group that tries to kill Jesus. And this time, Jesus doesn't flee. But he's arrested. And he's put on a cross. And on that cross, do you know Jesus becomes poor? Helpless, unable to save himself. He becomes imprisoned, offering himself as a sin debt to his Father on your behalf and mine. He becomes oppressed, beaten, mocked, abused for our sake. And it was on that cross where the Father who had always beheld his son, who could never take his watchful gaze off his son, it was on that cross where his father finally had to turn his face away. Why? Because the advent of good news is that Jesus absorbed the vengeance of God so that we might enjoy and experience the ultimate Jubilee offered to us in Jesus. His love and his grace and his life is offered to you this day. Embrace him. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Consider that an invitation. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.